ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9 with me this morning. Romans chapter 9. So far we've looked at this letter to the Romans by the Apostle Paul. And we've seen in chapters 1 through 4 that all humanity is trapped under the brokenness of sin and rebellion and they are in need of God's grace. So whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, they are all under the brokenness of sin and rebellion. And the only way to get out from that brokenness is by the grace that is received by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what chapters 1 through 4 are all about. Chapter 1, all the Gentiles are under God's wrath. Chapter 2, even the Jews are under God's wrath. Chapter 3, remember, is the great chapter that talks about our justification and how we can be made right with God through faith. And this faith that God demands puts us in a right standing before God. When we put our faith, our confidence in Jesus Christ, then that puts us in a right standing before God, both now and eternally. And the result of that union is that we are, chapters 5 through 8, empowered by God's Spirit to live lives that are changed. That, that we now are at peace with God, chapter 5, verse 1 begins. And then chapter 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what we finished last time by, by, by seeing that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And if we went from chapter 8, verse 39, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, to directly to chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, it, um, I beseech you, brethren, on the, by the mercies of God, that you offer yourselves as living sacrifices. We could move right from chapter 8 to chapter 12, and it would make complete sense. Because Paul had been talking about, in chapters 1 through 8, about the mercies of God. And in chapter 12, he says, based on that mercy based on what God has given to you, then you need to offer yourselves. And then chapters 12 through 16 are just a, a number of commands that, that flow out of what we know in chapters 1 through 8. And so we could actually understand the letter without chapters 9 through 11, but, but that's not what Paul does. He does include these three chapters, and I think he does it to answer the question, why Israel has rejected God if God had promised that they would accept him. God had made this specific promise to Abraham that they would accept God, that, that, that they would follow him, that his descendants would be, would be his special people. And yet, when, we look, when Paul looks around, when the believers at Rome look around, they see lots of Jews who have not accepted God. They have not accepted Christ. And so what he does here in chapters, 12, chapters 9 through 11 as he moves from, at the beginning, sorrow about their failure or the rejection of God, verses 1 through 5, to the end of chapter 11, he talks about how amazed he is at God's grace and how he praises God for his glory. And so he moves from, in chapters 9 through 11, if we think about it, like one big, um, one big argument or one big uh, point that he's trying to make. Paul is basically saying, listen, um, I'm sorrowful that they have rejected God, but then he comes to the end and says, I'm grateful to what, for what God has done. And so in the middle, what he's going to do is explain that the answer to that question, how can Israel be rejected by God when God promised that they would accept him? And the answer that he's going to give in these three chapters is that Israel is both God's enemy 
and God's Son. Now we're going to have to unpack it in order to understand what he means by that. But let me just show you um, our text for this morning. And hopefully that becomes clear over the next several weeks as we study together. Let's read together. I'll, I'll read out loud. You follow along in your Bible, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac... For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. If you're um, following along with your sermon schedule and reading the passages in advance, you notice that the, the text for this morning was it was planned to be verses 1 through 18, but as I studied these two passages here, 1 through 13 and then 14 to 29, I recognized that this is a better, um, a better division than what I had planned for originally. So uh, we'll pick up the rest of that, uh, the text, verses 14 through 29 next week, even though the schedule only says verses 19 through 29. What we see here is that God... God has not failed on his promise. This is what Paul wants us to know because the question that's going to be asked here is, is very important for us to consider. And the question is this. Why has Israel rejected the gospel when God promised otherwise? That's the question that he wants to lay out at the beginning. Paul is sorrowful about the Israel rejecting God. He wants to make it clear from the beginning that, that this is a conflict that we need to address, that we need to resolve. And the answer that he's going to give is that God, we, we, there's, there's one wrong answer that we can give. And that is that God is unfaithful. That's the wrong way to respond here. And so that's what he wants to make clear. God has not failed. He is not unfaithful to his promise. Let me show you um, why I think Paul's trying to address this question here from the text. First in verses 1 through 3, the Jews do not accept the gospel. Jews do not accept the gospel, verses 1 through 3. He begins by showing the sincerity of what he's about to say. Did you notice that when we were reading through that? He says, I say this to you in Christ. So he's saying there's some weight to what I have to say. And then I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. So there's a second way that he emphasizes this is important, what he's about to say. And then thirdly, my conscience 
testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. And what is it that Paul's so sincere about? Look at, in your Bible at verse 2. I'm so sincere about this that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Well, why are you so sorrowful and and grieving, Paul? And the answer is in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's saying, I wish that if it were possible that I could be condemned to an eternal hell so that Israel could be saved. I am sorrowful over the fact that Israel has not accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now this is a strange way to transition from what we saw last time in chapter 8 because Paul had just been talking about the overwhelming grace that we enjoy in our salvation. That we are no longer under God's wrath, chapter 8, verse 1. And now he moves to chapter 9 and says, I'm filled with sorrow and grief all the time. And the reason for this grief and sorrow is because his fellow Jews are lost and going to hell. Now, Paul makes this statement. He says, if it were possible, in verse 3, I would wish myself accursed. I would make myself accursed for the sake of the Jews. Now, he clearly knows that he cannot be accursed, right? We already saw in chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Right? Not angels, not principalities, not things in heaven, not things below, in things present, things to come. No created thing. There's nothing that's able to separate us from the love of Christ. So Paul clearly knows that he can't be accursed at this point because he's already trusted in Christ. But he's saying, if it were possible... For him to make this exchange, that if he could make the exchange, his soul for the souls of Israel, he would do so. And what really troubles him is, I think, what troubled the Jews in general, and that is that this conflict there, that the Jews are not accepting Christ, this should not be the case. It should not be that the Jews are rejecting Christ. They should be accepting him. And why should that be the case? Verses 4 and 5 tell us. It's because God has made this promise. He has promised that they would accept Him. That they would be the recipients of His blessing. Verses 4 and 5. Notice who this Israel is. They have seven great privileges that Paul lists here. And he's saying, because of all these privileges, we would expect that Israel would accept these blessings from God, but they reject them. Why is this the case when God gave them so much and promised them so much. First privilege that he he lists here is adoption in verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons? This word adoption means to be placed into God's family and given all the rights and privileges as a son. That he would be uh, even able to receive an, an inheritance. So for a father who didn't have a child, he adopts a son, he would be the rightful heir of that of that inheritance. And God's saying, listen, that's Israel. They are, they are in a place where they are adopted into God's family, given all the rights and privileges of being God's son. And the second privilege is that they enjoyed God's presence. It says, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory. That is, the glory of God that follow, or led them, I was going to say follow, but led them around in the wilderness. Right? This, this fiery cloud that led them 
um, by night and, and the, the pillar of cloud that led them by day. The same thing is true when we, we think about God in the tabernacle and the temple, that God's glory filled that place. They had that great benefit. Israel enjoyed that. Third privilege is these formal covenants. The, the glory and the covenants there in verse 4. These formal covenants, I think he's specifically referring to like the Abrahamic covenant, that through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I think he's also referring to the Mosaic covenant that would come later and then the Davidic covenant, that the God made a special pact between Israel and himself. And, and it could be summed up all in one phrase that we saw repeated over and over again in the Old Testament and we see actually come back in the New Testament, which is, you will be my people and I will be your God. Israel, and, Israel enjoyed great privileges. The fourth is the word of God. They enjoyed um, the word of God. That is, that God came and spoke to them. He gave them the law at the, at the middle of verse 4. talks about the giving of the law. This was a special thing that, that God didn't do to other nations. He didn't go into um, to Syria and say, hey, here's, here's all the great uh, laws that will help you come into a right relationship with me. He did that for Israel. And so they should have enjoyed that benefit. That is, that they could come into a relationship with him on the basis of what he said. Then at the end of verse 4, the temple service, or we could just more broadly describe it as the sacrificial system. This might not sound like a privilege to us. It sounds like a lot of work, right? Bringing animals all the time, seeing them get killed in front of us, blood being poured out, uh, all, all sorts of rituals that are going on. We might think of that. Well, how can that be some kind of a privilege? It sounds like a, a chore, a, a, a challenge for them. But, but consider what it meant for them. It meant that they could come into fellowship with God. It meant that God could dwell among them. It meant that they could have their sins covered and they could come into the presence of God and hear God speak and that they could bring their requests before God through this sacrificial system. This was a great privilege that Israel enjoyed. And then the sixth privilege is the promises whose are the fathers actually moves into verse 5 there. The promises whose are the fathers. That is, the, com- the promises that cover more than just the formal covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, but also the promises that come uh, in addition to that. that. That God would send a Messiah, for example, in the prophets. This includes all the promises from Abraham, I think, to Malachi. And so God says, listen... You, know, you, you, Israel, had these great privileges. And this last one is the Messiah. The Messiah would come through their very race, their ethnic group, their family. This is the greatest privilege that Israel had, that the Messiah would come through them. And notice that this privilege is not one that's simply to be passed over. Notice the text there in verse 5. And from whom, that is from Israel, is the Christ, the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. So here, Christ is described as both man, did you see that there in the text, according to the flesh, and then he's also described as God, who is overall. He's not just a man. He's not just a person to be passed over like some other human being that was born and we learn about in our history books. He is actually, yes, man, but he is God in human flesh. And for that reason, he cannot be ignored. He is God blessed forever. This is how Jesus is described as the God-man. What you need to recognize is that this is how Jesus will be forever. 
that He forever will be the God-man. Now, He has not always been the God-man. He has always been God. He has always existed eternally as God the Son, but He only became man when He was conceived in Mary's womb. And then He he remained man. He died as man. He rose as man. And He now lives as God-man forever. That He is that perfect mediator between us and God. right? That He can... He can both speak on behalf of God. He knows what God's thoughts are and what he, he desires for us. And He can speak on behalf of us. Why? Because He knows our weaknesses. He can sympathize with us in that way. God, is, Jesus is forever our mediator in that way. So Israel has all these great privileges. And yet, here's the sad part that Paul wants to, to, to draw out for us and consider. And that is that, that Israel, despite all these great privileges have rejected God. They have rejected God's Son. They have rejected the Messiah. And why is that? Well, Paul's going to give three answers in the rest of chapter... uh, three wrong answers in the rest of chapter 9. And we're not going to cover all of them today. But the first is that God is unfaithful. That's the first wrong answer. Why is it that Israel has rejected God when God so clearly promised that they would accept Him? How is it that Israel is not accepting God... We could say during the time of Paul, but also we could say it today. Why is Israel rejecting the Messiah today? And the first wrong answer is this. And it's fundamental, I think, to what he's going to say to the rest of the chapter. And it is that God is unfaithful. That's the first wrong answer. God is unfaithful. He wants to show that that's not the case. Paul wants to show that God is not unfaithful. And he does that with the very first phrase in verse 6. Notice the text there. It says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So here's his thesis that we need to understand because we need to ask the same question that Paul is asking. Israel is is rejecting God and under the condemnation of God, even though God had promised that they would accept Him. And so what we cannot allow our minds to think is that God is unfaithful, that God failed on His promise. And the reason that we can't think that way is because God hasn't failed on His promise to Israel. And in order for Paul to prove that, he's going to have to show some examples from the Old Testament, and that's exactly what he does. He supports his claim that God is not unfaithful. Notice again this main claim that he's making. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. So here's what we have to be clear about. Israel is rejecting God, not because God is unfaithful. And the proof for that is seen, or the support is seen at the end of verse 6. End of verse 6 says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So think about that for a second. Because here's how a Jewish mind might think, and here's how we might think about Jews as well. Everyone who is a descendant of Abraham will receive all the blessings that were promised to Abraham. But here's what Paul is trying to make clear to us, and I think it's consistent with the rest of what Paul has to say in the other parts of Scripture, and that is, that not all are Israel that are descended from Israel. Not all are spiritual recipients of God's blessing promised to Abraham who are physical descendants of Israel. And, And the reason that we know that is because we can just look back at Old Testament history and see that there are a number of Abraham's descendants. We're going to start with his direct descendants. Who, 
who did not receive the great blessings that God had promised to them, even though they were descendants physically of Abraham. In other words, Israel throughout its history received these seven great privileges. Obviously the seventh one didn't come till later, but, but they received these seven great privileges. And yet many rejected these, they, many rejected Christ. They, many rejected God. And so Paul is going to use verses 7 to 13 to prove that not all who are descended from Israel are beneficiaries of Israel's promised blessings. First, proof from, proof from uh, Isaac to Ishmael. Uh, yeah, proof from, proof from Isaac and not Ishmael. What we want to know is, is who the real descendants of Abraham are. Will the real descendants of Abraham please stand up? This is what the readers want to know. And Paul is going to answer that question by going back to the original recipients of the promise. And he starts on a journey through Israel's history. So, so if you think that all who are descended physically from Israel are beneficiaries of God's promised blessing, then just go back to Israel's original history and start working your way through and notice that not all received the promise. Not all were beneficiaries of it. In this case, in verses 7 through 9, God's promise was meant for Isaac, not Ishmael. He says, verse 7, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants physically, but through Isaac. Notice the, the idea is only through Isaac your descendants will be named. It's not the children of the flesh, not the physical descendants of Abraham who are the children of God, but it's the children of promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Hagar shall have a son or Abraham shall have a son and all of Abraham's sons will be blessed. No, just Isaac. Just through Sarah. God was bringing this blessing. And this is amazing when you think about it because both Ishmael and Isaac were direct descendants of Abraham. So if we're thinking, okay, Abraham's descendants are, are the recipients of God's blessing. Well, what we need to consider is that Ishmael was a direct descendant. In fact, amazingly, he's the oldest descendant. He's the oldest son. He's, he's the rightful heir. And he should have been the recipient of the promise if we just think about it humanly speaking. And what Paul's trying to show here is that, that God is the one who determines who is the recipient of his blessing. And the fact is that, that, that selection of people to God's family has always been based on God's choice. Not on whether a person was a Jew or not. Not on a, whether a person was good enough or not. God's pouring out of His blessing has always been based on, all the way back to the beginning, has always been based on His choice. And here he chose Isaac over Ishmael. That's why it says, through Isaac your descendants will be named. Ishra Amazingly, Ishmael would receive many descendants as well, but they were not recipients of God's spiritual promises. In fact, if you think about it, Abraham actually had eight sons altogether, through Hagar, Sarah, and then later on, don't hear much about this, but Keturah, he had six sons through her. And yet only Isaac was a son of promise. 
And the point is that if even Abraham's direct sons were not sons of the promise, then the fact that there are unbelieving Jews in Paul's day and there are unbelieving Jews in our day does not nullify God's promise. See, what we can say is, well, I know a bunch of Jews who don't accept Christ as the Messiah who are going to be eternally condemned, and so God's promise must have failed. You know what the Holy Spirit wants us to see? That you go back to the beginning, and even Abraham's original descendants were not all beneficiaries of God's blessings. And that's because Jewish ethnicity and great privilege do not guarantee God's blessing. Great privilege does not guarantee God's blessing. God's blessing has always been based on his choice. But Paul doesn't stop his proofs there. He wants to show another example for Israel's early history that God's promise has not failed to his people. Remember, that's the main thesis that he wants to give here in verse 6. And that is, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God has not failed on his promise. So here's another proof, and it comes from God's choice of Jacob over Esau in verses 10 to 13. God chooses Jacob over Esau. Now you might look at the example of Ishmael and Isaac and think, you know, well, there's lots of differences there, right? They have different mothers, and so maybe that played into it. Different responses. You know, Ishmael was kind of a jerk to Isaac. And and so we could maybe look at them and say, well, maybe that's why God chose Isaac. He was the better kid. He had a better mother. Maybe that was it. But Paul doesn't want us to go there because if we think that God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael had anything to do with something that was inherent in them, then we need to consider Jacob and Esau. Notice the similarity between these two twins. Verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So here's the first, here's the first thing. Here's the first thing. Uh, Similarity in Jacob and Esau. They had the same father and mother. Okay, so if we think, well, maybe it's because it's a different mother, it's not. Second, verse, verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born. The second similarity is that God made clear his choice of one over the other at what time? Before they were even born. And, and to, to highlight that, here's this third similarity in verse 11. Um, before they were born, and had not done anything good or bad. So here's what Paul's trying to address. Well, Ishmael and Isaac, there must have been something in them that God saw and he just really liked. Well, God's saying, no. You see, with Jacob and Esau, I chose one of them before they were born. They had the same parents. Before they were born, and before they had done anything good or bad, they had nothing on their record that I could look and say, well, I guess I could choose Jacob over Esau. And the point is, is that neither one of these two boys had a better claim on God's promise. And yet, in verse 12, it tells us that God made his choice known to her while they were still in her womb. It was said to her, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. Before they had anything to contribute to the conversation about their worthiness, God said, I'm choosing him. I'm choosing the younger one of the two in this case. And the point is that God is the one who, des- to, who determines who will receive his blessing. It's not based on human goodness or badness. Do you see that in the text again, verse 11? For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or 
bad. God's choice of who receives his blessing is not based on whether or not we do something or we have done something wrong. It's based on his choice. Notice the second part of verse 11. So that, why did God do it this way? So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God chose one over the other so that his choice would stand, so that it would be clear to all that it wasn't based on anything Jacob did or would have done. Or it wasn't based on anything Esau did or would have done. It was based on God's choice that his purpose would stand. God's choice of Jacob over Esau is confirmed in this quotation in verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, it's not based on the goodness of Jacob or the evil of Esau, but based on God's own free choice. The idea of that loved here that comes from Malachi 1 is the idea of God choosing for his purposes, choosing to be the recipient of his blessing. And the idea of hating Esau is the idea of rejecting him, not receiving the promises. See, God's choice is not based on anything that we have done. Notice at the end of verse 11 again, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God wants to make it clear that that his choice of one person over another is not based on works. And this is confirmed in verse 16. We'll see this next week. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. That is, our, our receiving of the blessing, our salvation, is not dependent on any of those things. It's not on our own efforts or what we do or what we would have done. It's, it's based on God's mercy. It's based on what God desires to do. That's why he told to Moses in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the question is, why did God choose Isaac over Ishmael? Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? And we could extend that out to us. Why did God choose me over my unsaved relative or my unsaved neighbor? Well, Paul gives a little bit of a window into it in our passage that we looked at today. That, that God's purpose would stand. We don't know what that purpose is. And he's going to give a little bit more of a window into it next week when we look at verses 14 to 29. But, but the question that, that we need to be clear about and, and the, the, the proper answer here that Paul addresses is why are some Jews not recipients of the promise when God promised otherwise? And the first wrong answer that Paul wants to refute is that God is unfaithful to his word. It is clear that God's word has not failed. It has always been this way. That God has chosen one over the other. Even though they were direct descendants, even though uh, they had not done good and bad, God chose one over the other. God is faithful to his word. Now he's going to give some some more... Eric, are you you up there? Can you uh, help me advance this next slide here? Thanks. Let me see where I'm at here. So wrong answer number one. This is what we saw this morning. God is unfaithful. The second wrong answer we'll see next week is that God is unjust in verses 14 through 18. And the third wrong answer is that God is unfair. And the right answer is that Israel is proud. Israel is responsible for their sin. We'll, we'll work through this over the next couple of weeks.
So let me just give you a principle to consider here uh, as we conclude. And that is this. Spiritual privilege does not guarantee God's blessing. Spiritual privilege does not guarantee God's blessing. You may be a person who has been the recipient of great privilege spiritually. You're born in a country that allows for religious freedom. Maybe you grew up in a church that preached the gospel and loved the gospel and lived the gospel. Maybe you had the opportunity to read through the Bible a number of times. Maybe you've been gifted with the great truth of God as you study it for yourself or hear it preached. And what I want to be clear about this morning is that none of those privileges guarantee God's blessing. Because not all religious people, just like not all Jews, are recipients of God's blessing. The basis for God's blessing is ultimately dependent on God's choice. The choice of Isaac, the choice of Jacob, was not based on works. Instead, it was based on God who calls. And the same is true for every believer of all time. The choice of you over your unbelieving brother or your unbelieving neighbor is not based on your works or your goodness. It's not even based on your own faith. The choice of you over another is a gift from God. What does the text say? It is based on, verse 11, God who calls. Now we need to be clear that faith is necessary. Now we don't want to get, go down the road and say, well, if my faith doesn't do anything, then why even express it? Be, and the answer is because when God calls a person in the sense of that He chooses, that faith will natu- naturally result. Turn back to chapter 8 and verse 30. And notice this progression, that those whom He predestined, those whom He determined would be His children before the foundation of the earth, verse 30, He also called. And what happens when God calls a person effectively? He justifies them, right? They respond with faith, which results in justification. This is a natural progression or a guaranteed progression. When God chooses a person, He calls them. When God calls a person, they come to justification by What? By faith in Jesus Christ. So our faith is necessary. But it's not the basis on which God accepts us. Do you see? It's not the ultimate basis on which we are accepted. It's on the basis of His choice. His choice is what determines our faith, not the other way around. God doesn't choose us because we believe. He chooses us that we may believe. Now, I I recognize that this may bring up 20 more questions in your mind or maybe 20,000. And so let me just encourage you to write those questions down between now and next week. Maybe your brain is just in a a fog and, and you're like, how could this possibly be the case? How could God be responsible for every single person's salvation from beginning to end? Write down those questions, those things that just seem like, man, I don't even know if I should be asking this question. Write those questions down. And, and uh, I think some of those questions will be addressed as we study through the text next week. But, but any additional questions that I don't address uh, in the sermon, I'd be happy to, to try to answer them. And some of them I, just, I, I may not know or may not be able to help you, but, but I can help you as best as I can. What we need to know for today is that God is true to His promises. He has not failed on what He promised to Abraham and to Israel. He has not gone back back on His promise just because Israel has failed. 
God has chosen and had designed it this way, that he had chosen some of Israel to be Israel and others of Israel not to be Israel. Do you understand what I mean by that? God chose some of the physical descendants to actually be spiritual descendants, but he actually chose some physical descendants, other physical descendants, not to be his spiritual descendants. Not all children of Israel are of Israel. That is, they're not all recipients of the blessing. That's because of God's choice. The fact that God made it clear to us the message of the gospel and it's given us the gift of faith should cause us to respond with thanksgiving and praise. That we serve such a great God that would be willing to offer to us this gift of salvation. And if you respond, you can know that you were chosen. You can't know that you're... Let me know if I'm chosen, then I'll respond. No, all who respond are chosen. That's the key. And, and I think uh, we'll, we'll have to just leave the rest for next time. I apologize for opening up a can of worms, but, but I think it's uh, consistent with the, the text. And um, I, you would do well to, to study this text that we've just looked at today and, and see if what I have to say is true. And then uh, also just preview the text for next week so that you'll be ready to, um, to receive that as well. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the gift of salvation. And Lord, we thank you that all of it is based on your choice and your desire. And Lord, we, we buck against that sort of idea because we want to have some semblance of control. And we feel like it, it, it goes against our free will, turns us into robots, and, and we know that your word... Um, makes it clear that we are not robots. We choose what we want to choose, but at the same time, you are, are the one that, that drives our choices and that ultimately brings about what you want to bring about. And that's why we can take joy in the cross because it wasn't just an accident or a bunch of bad choices gone wrong and then you had to hurry up and scramble to, to, to make it right by raising him from the dead, but it was actually part of your purpose from before the foundations of the world, that he would die for the sake of sins. And so, Lord, the cross was not your plan B, but it was your plan A, so that we could come to you. And, Lord, when we recognize that, that our salvation was not based on us, it was not based on anything that we had done, that you had chosen us before we were even born, before we had done anything good or bad. When we realize that truth for the first time, when we, were, when we remember it over and over again, we have to just fall on you for mercy. And we have to be amazed at your grace because it was not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it was all according to your mercy. It was not based on works so that we could not boast. We couldn't say that we were any better than anyone else. It was just simply that you chose us and we responded to your call. And so, Lord, in that way, we are debtors to your grace, debtors to your mercy. We offer ourselves to you fully as living sacrifices. We give ourselves. We are your servants. Lord, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.